Love and Other Historical Accidents by Pacific Rimbaud Chapter 6 Hermione's hair was primordial wilderness of curls, and tendrils of it striking out in every direction across her pillowcase. She pressed her hips down into her mattress and arched her back, tilting her head to the side and stretching open the damp expanse of her throat. Draco leaned over her and growled, Come with me, Granger. The fabric of her chemise bunched up around her waist and clung to the sweat gathered at the curve of her lower back. Her bed linens were in an equal state of devastation, twisted and untucked. She groaned. I told you I don't want to. Draco looked away from her and sighed. It's going to be weird if you don't. No, it isn't. You're fine on your own. When have you ever worried about whether or not I'll come with you anyway? Well, I'm worried about it now, he said. I feel like you should care a little less about how well you perform. He looked genuinely hurt. I've been led to understand that you have plenty of other women to care about your speed and stamina. I don't understand why you need me as well. It's a chore for me. But it's generally expected that you come. It will be a poor showing if I go off without you. I don't care to explain to other people why I wasn't able to bring you along. No one is going to be bothered in the slightest. Tell them I wasn't in the mood. She shut her eyes tight. I'm going to lie here and relax while you do whatever it is that you need to do, and no one's going to give it a second thought. Why not? Because this race is completely daft. You're going tearing around on a forested track and a 200-year-old broom. The broom isn't 200 years old at the moment. Hermione gave him a withering look. What's the worst broom model you've ever flown in your life? Well... He leaned away from her and swiped reflectively at the scar by setting his eyebrow. We all had to use a ridiculous shooting stance of flying lessons our first year. Oh, how could I have forgotten? It's absolutely true that we were shoddy brooms for an extremely limited period of time nearly 13 years ago. I'm sure whatever vintage model they've got for you to borrow over at the Longbottoms will be a lark. She sat up on her elbows and tugged on the front of her chemise. Lord, it gets hot up here at night. There are spells for that, you know. From the looks of it, you don't go easy on your bed linens, either. He plucked at a stray corner of her coverlet. Doing a bit of calisthenics before you knock off. Hermione tugged her sheets straight. I'd like to keep limber. What sort of sport costume is it you have on there? Draco looked down. How do you mean? Your trousers are... She weighed her words. Well, it's just they don't leave much to the imagination. I'm going flying, Granger, he said. I'm dressed appropriately. She fell backwards onto her pillow. So what is it that you want from me? To come over and cheer you on while you beat William Avery into submission in front of the girl he'd probably be proposing to this summer if it weren't for you and your thighs? Who ever said anything about beating William Avery? He considered her. My thighs? Your level of concern with the fit of other people's trousers is itself concerning. She rose and shoved at him with both hands. Get every part of your legs off my bed! He got up and walked to the door, looking as sure of himself as ever. I'll meet you downstairs, then. Yawning, she swung her legs over the side of the bed and kicked them back and forth while she stretched her arms over her head. All right, but only so you can have a laugh at your expense and when you go tumbling off that underbush and you'll muss your hair. You want to see what my hair looks like after a bit of a tumble? His smile was infuriating. No, but you'll smirk right away. She bit the insides of her cheeks to prevent any betrayal of amusement. Leave. I'll expect all the familial philistations due to me when I win this race, you know, he said over his shoulder. Though it was thrown with some strength and passion, her pillow struck the side of the door rather than the back of his head. The air over the expansive lawns of Bugbuntley Hall smelled heavily of lavender. Great shrubs of it flourished along the gravel walks at the garden's lower edge, their stalks rustling with the activity of scores of tawny butterflies. Hermione leaned back on a wooden bench, shaded in the bower of an aged elm, his branches flushed with summer green. Beside her, Martin dozed in his chair, capless in the heat, his hair floated around his head, colourless and insubstantial, as filaments of dandelion seed. And his breath stirred the petals of the fat, scented peony Cassandra Longbottom had tucked into his blanket folds. 
His spectacles slid down his nose as he slept, so Hermione had removed them and now held them folded in her lap. She turned a page of her book, ignoring the shouts and high-pitched screams of the Longbottom girls ringing out from the bottom of the lawn. I hope that you'll pardon me, Miss Granger. She lay a hand in the joint of her book and looked up. Roland Weasley stood just outside her circle of shade, a quarter of a smile at his mouth and his loose curls shining copper in the mid-morning sun. What can I assist you with, Mr Weasley? His smile was highly communicable, and Hermione found she wasn't yet inoculated against it. I regard it as the height of ill-breeding to interrupt a woman while she's reading, he said, stepping towards her. Hermione's smile pulled a fraction wider. But I'm going to take the risk of you believing I'm an absolute shawl, he continued, and ask what has so thoroughly captured your attention while the rest of the party has been otherwise occupied. Hermione turned the book over in her hands and ran her fingertips across the title. Entheogenic Potionery in the Alchemy of the Mind, embossed with gold lettering. Looking up again, she held her hand over her eyes to shield them from the sun reflecting off the clipped grass. It's one of Mr. Martin's books. She shifted towards the end of the bench. I'll freely admit that I haven't grasped its finer points just yet. Roland sat down beside her and regarded the yellow leather cover. I understand that his work is fascinating, but to some degree impenetrable, he said. And may I take a look? She handed it to him, and as he took it, he slid his hand between the pages where hers had just been. Without losing her place, he leafed through the first few pages, his bright blue eyes ticking back and forth over the tiny print. There were numerous densely packed diagrams and complex potion formulas, written in the same shorthand symbols Hermione had learnt at school. Merlin, what a mind, he said. He passed the book back to her, and she received it. She slipped her own hand back into place. Would you be so kind as to give me the loan of this while I'm in Wiltshire? he asked. Martin's books are available in the library at Oxford, but we're kept rather occupied at our other studies. And, of course, here I have the advantage of the master himself if I'm struck by any burning questions. He peered around at Martin, peacefully a snooze and lightly snoring. Hermione was grateful for Martin's apparent tranquillity. He'd been agitated all morning, so much so that Grix very nearly refused to give his blessing for an outing. Grix was only appeased by Hermione's solemn assurances that their cousin would be encouraged to frequently sip cooled water, under no conditions would gain access to wine, and would not be given more than the most conservative morsel of anything sweet, should it be an offer. Roland seemed to find Martin's relaxed napping equally as pleasing, and his expression, as he turned it towards Hermione, was easiness itself. She flushed with a genial glow to the tips of her toes inside her flimsy satin shoes. I'm sure Cousin Martin would be willing to part with the fresh copy, if I asked for author's permission to conjure one for you. Oh, have you reproduced text before? That's a terribly underappreciated transfiguration skill. Grossly underappreciated, Hermione said passionately, shifting to the edge of her seat. It's simple enough to make a copy that looks like it ought to on the outside, and is full of absolute nonsense. But if you want the text to be fully intact... She cut herself off and turned her head distracted by the distinctive throaty shout of Cassandra Longbottom. Draco helped Cassandra up onto his broom, and there she sat, sideways, with her ankles crossed chastely, hovering at waist height. She was clearly agitated to be released, but he held firm to the handle and spoke to her earnestly, gesturing between her and the broom. "'I am going to be quite shameless and beg you to join the rest of the party on the lawns,' said Roland, as he rose from the bench. There's been talk of little else besides Miss Granger all morning with the Longbottom girls. I find I've developed a rather ferocious curiosity to learn about you myself. Hermione felt terribly self-conscious. Are you nearly ready for the race? she asked, steering the conversation in another direction. She marked her book with a parchment scrap as she rose from the bench, tucked Martin's spectacles into his blanket beside the soft pink bloom, then trailed after Roland. More than, he said over his shoulder. She studiously avoided staring at his sculptural back end in his tight tan leather trousers, some version of which all the men had worn for the occasion. Like Draco, Roland was dressed in a white shirt, slightly more fitted than she had seen anyone wear before then, and the fabric configuration at the throat was far less formal. Hermione thought of it, with no small degree of pleasure, as an athletic cravat. 
He wore sturdy-looking knee-high boots and leather arm guards, and had a pair of leather gloves tucked into the back of his trouser waist. Did you play Quidditch, Mr Weasley? Hermione asked. She looked back over her shoulder to make sure that Martin still slept. Roland laughed, and the look that he gave her as he lopped over the grass was full of congenial mischief. A little, Miss Granger. You're being facetious. Never, he laughed again. A well-kept walk circled the wooden acreage of the Longbottom Estate. The spectators faced a break in the tree line that revealed a long, open section of the path. Isadora and Penelope sat together on a large picnic blanket. It was laid out before the table, flanked by two white-painted wrought-iron chairs, where Lady Longbottom and Mrs Longbottom relaxed beneath lace-trimmed umbrellas. Lady Longbottom wafted herself in an elaborately decorated silk fan, while Mrs Longbottom silently knitted a lace blanket in white fool. On the table, dishes of cold-sliced meat, cheeses, bread, green salads and fruit sat under a cooling charm. There were bottles of pink liquid, too, all of it ready to be enjoyed while watching men chase after one another on brooms. "'Is your cousin happy, Miss Granger?' Isadora asked Hermione as she approached. "'Her retreat to the shade was a success. He's sleeping quite peacefully,' said Hermione. "'I won't move him just yet.' "'I wouldn't disturb him for the world. Can I offer you a drink?' Isadora indicated the table behind her. "'It's uncommonly warm this morning.' Roland lowered himself to sit on a corner of the picnic blanket. He half reclined with his arm propped over one knee, watching Draco and Cassandra at their flying experiments. Hermione sat too, positioning herself so that she could watch Martin for any signs of wakefulness. Thank you, Miss Longbottom. She tucked her book beside her and pressed a palm to her forehead. It's awfully muggy today. Isadora rose to mix a drink pouring pink liquid from a bottle into a glass, diluting it with cold water from a pitcher, and dropping in several fresh raspberries before handing it to Hermione. Several yards away, Cassandra laughed unreservedly from her sideways perch on Draco's broom, and tried to goad him into letting her go. "'Release me, Mr Granger!' she shouted, striving to twist herself to the side, and lean forward at the same time. "'Or I'm going to fly round and knock into you like a game of balls!' Beside them, Cressida pressed her hands together in front of her chin, and laughed almost as heartily as her sister. "'Yes, let her go!' she clapped her hands. "'Cassie, make him let you go!' "'I certainly won't if you're going to knock into me,' said Draco. "'You're a violent thing, aren't you?' Near a stretch of crumbling low stone fence being incrementally swallowed up by the wood, William Avery pulled a pair of Quidditch goggles down on his forehead, and watched as Draco finally let go of his broom. Cassandra moved over the lawn in a wide circle, followed by Cressida at a jog. "'Go faster, Cassie!' shouted Cressida. She looked back over her shoulder, blooming and happy in the sunlight. "'Mr Granger, is she going fast enough for you?' Draco shook his head. "'She can go as fast as she likes. Only, Miss Cassandra, remember what I told you about holding your balance slightly towards the back of the broom?' Tom Longbottom finished adjusting the leather straps of his goggles, and slowly pulled on his gloves. Beside him, Sir Thomas engaged in stretching exercises. In his tight leather trousers, and with his goggles perched atop his head, he rapidly squatted down and swung his arms straight out in front of him, punctuating the movement with a deep-chested, HO! Next he rose explosively to his toes, spreading his arms out to the side at a forty-five-degree angle, and shouted, HA! He followed the sequence with several startlingly aggressive waist twists that made Hermione's spine ache. Then he ran in place, lifting his knees neatly to his barrel chest for eight or ten steps, while slapping each thigh with an alternating hand before starting the series anew. Draco kept his eyes glued to Cassandra, breaking his vigil only to glance occasionally towards the group seated on the picnic blanket. "'You can go up on mine if you'd like, Cressy,' William called, gesturing to his broom. Cressida was still chasing after her sister, but slowed and looked back at William. She was breathing hard, the colour blossoming high in her cheeks, and her golden curls frayed in the humidity. She glanced at Draco, then Cassandra. She seemed to deliberate, then sighed, and gripped the fabric of her skirts in one hand, and tugged over the lawn to meet William beside his broom. "'Shall I give you a hand?' he asked. And when he recognised something in his voice and in the tilt of his brow, 
There was something familiar about the lift of Cressida's chin, too, and the way her eyes narrowed as she allowed William to grip her around the waist and hoist her to sit on his broom. Is this all right? he asked her. Cressida nodded. As he released her, she gripped her handle tight and looked determinately forward. Miss Granger! shouted Cassandra, banking into a turn nearby. Do you fly? Hermione shook her head vigorously. No, I do not. Come on! Cassandra banked again and circled around in a short horizontal loop. Let's really take you up. Hermione tensed and steeled herself against looking at Roland. Oh, Merlin, no! She gripped her book like a talisman. I don't fly unless it's a question of life or death. Cassandra pulled to a stop beside Hermione, looking entirely in control of the broom. Her eyes were bright and fierce. But Rowley's a genius in the air, Miss Granger. He played seeker for Gryffindor for ever so many years. Roland plucked a grass blade from the lawn and twisted it around in his fingertip. They really oughtn't have let him play so early, Cassandra went on. But he was tremendously good. I can't tell you on how many occasions I've screened myself horse egging him on at the pitch. And you could have played professionally, couldn't you, Rowley? Roland shook his head but smiled. You could have, Cassandra insisted. I heard Daddy talking about it to Mr Avery. Only you had to go and play for mouldy old Oxford, which isn't half as exciting. There's slightly less transfiguration research going on in professional Quidditch than we do at Oxford, Miss Cassandra, said Roland. Cassandra wrinkled her nose with displeasure. I rescind your status as Quidditch captain. Retroactively. It's removed from the record. She waved her hand. And we did without a head boy that year as well. Hogwarts remembers you not at all. He shone his genial fraction of a smile at her. Shall I not have sat for my newts, either? And they'll beat me out of Oxford, you know. Cassandra raised a singular pale brow. Having flown a respectable clip, her hair was more windswept and untamed than her sister's. As to that, I have no opinion. And I shan't talk about newts. With that, she had done with Roland and turned back to Draco. How do I go faster, Mr Granger? Draco had been standing quietly, watching the party with a hand in the back of his neck. His mouth twisted with uncertainty. If I'm being honest, you really need to straddle the broom. Cassandra sat up tall and clapped her hands. Indeed! Without a hint of hesitation, she hiked her skirts to her knees and slung one leg over the broom handle. She kicked off and swept up beside Draco. And like this? she asked. Lady Longbottom's fan stalled mid-sweep. Cassandra, she said indolently. Vous n'êtes vrai pas, monsieur, en vos jambes. Merlin, Cassie, Isadora rose to her knees as if readying herself to march across the lawn and yank Cassandra off the broom. You can't sit so, my darling. Penelope snorted a bit into a pineapple stick. Draco and Cassandra ignored all. He scrutinised her posture. As a girl, your centre of gravity is slightly different than a boy's. It's lower. You have, and this is broadly speaking, different considerations of weight and muscle mass. It helps most girls to lean slightly back. Cassandra subtly shifted on the broom. To Hermione's eye, the difference seemed entirely inconsequential. But Draco's face lit up with excitement. Yes, precisely like that. Well done. Now if you hold your weight there and press forward from the shoulders... Cassandra Longbottom went off like a shot, coursing over the lawns of the hall so fast that her hair came untucked strand by strand until it trailed out behind her in a waist-length stream of rippling gold. Lady Longbottom sat up and pursed her lips, scandalised at the last into facial expression. Sir Thomas was moved as well, but in an entirely different direction, and watched his youngest child open-mouthed and beaming. She leaped back around and sped past him, ruffling his hair in her wake. He shouted, Ho, ho, Cassandra, what's this? Move on, you girl, that's it. Move on. Well done indeed, Roland said. The start of a smile that he seemed always to have at the ready broadened into a grand and even grin, and his beautiful laugh arrived close on its heels. Bring it in, Cassandra, Draco called with authority beckoning her with his hand as she barrelled towards him. She obeyed and brought the broom to a stop with a tight arc a mere foot away from him, a smile incandescent. You're a natural, Draco said, 
gripping his broom handle while she climbed down. You'd have some catching up to do, certainly, but have you considered going out for Quidditch next year? Cassandra's laugh was slight and nervous, out of face with the look of ferocity that had overtaken her face. That's not a very kind joke, Mr Granger, she said, turning from him and heading towards the picnic blanket. It isn't a joke. He looked to Hermione. When do girls start to play commonly at Hogwarts? Hermione looked at him in disbelief. Are you aware that you're speaking at full volume? I'm only saying that by rights, Cassandra ought to play next season, he said. I realise even we were nowhere near parity, but... I agree that girls ought to play. She spoke slowly and deliberately through a clenched drawer. I'm sure that they will. Very soon. He looked perturbed. All right. But how is it that they've been able to hire for the harpies before now? That's absolute rubbish. Draco! Cassandra threw herself down by Penelope, who sat up and used the wand she'd drawn from Hermione, knew not where to begin coiling Cassandra's hair back on top of her head. Oh, Merlin, I need a drink. Cassandra was still catching her breath. Are you having a shrub, Miss Granger? She looked at Hermione's glass and her eyes grew wide. That looks fantastic. Draco stood his broom on end against a tree and joined the rest of the party. Do you mind if I sit, Miss Granger? he asked, and then he actually winked at her. Hermione ignored him, but he sat down close to her anyway, stretched out his legs and leaned back on both of his elbows. It does look good, Hermione, he said. He peered into her glass. Oh, look at that. It's got raspberries in it. You're set for the day. Hermione sipped her drink. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. I'm sure that you do. I'm sure that I don't. She feigned investment in the progress Cressida was making in her side saddled meander around the perimeter of the lawns on William's broom. Draco leaned in until his temple rested against Hermione's upper arm and tilted his eyes up at her. Are you seriously going to pretend that you don't recollect your French martini habit? he whispered. Annoyed, she bit into a raspberry and looked with a keen and quasi-maternal interest towards the sleeping Mr Martin. That's only at Christmas. I am fully aware that it's only at Christmas, said Draco with a short laugh. It doesn't make it any less real. Cressida looped back around to William and stopped. Before she could dismount on her own, he grasped her round the waist and lifted her forward. She leaned into him, her hands gripping him at the shoulders, and Hermione watched as a look passed between them. It was a silent conversation in two parts. William's face was reproachful, and upon seeing it, Cressida became imperious, as if denying she'd done anything wrong and became affronted at the mere suggestion that she had. He held her long enough to turn and set her down, and when he did, he didn't immediately let her go. His face was very close to hers, his look still chiding and with a hint of a challenge. Cressida tipped her chin forward, then sucked at a breath and swiftly pulled away. Her fingers flexed in the fabric of his shirt before she turned and ran to join the rest of the family. Have a nice ride, Cressy, asked Roland, peering thoughtfully at the dour-looking William. I did. She sat beside Penelope and raised her chin proudly. On with your race, then, she asked, dusting off her skirts. I suppose we must, eh, Granger? Roland looked for a moment at Hermione, then flashed a grin at Draco that wasn't returned. Without haste, he stood, went to fetch his broom and began to pull on his gloves. Sir Thomas bound over to the lawn with energy of a hare being chased by a pack of hounds, and pulled up beside his elegant wife, leaning down to offer her his cheek. Full luck! To Hermione's surprise, Lady Longbottom pressed her lips to her husband's cheek quite tenderly, then stroked her long, delicate fingers over his beard before giving it a playful tug. You're only pacing them so you don't cheat, father. I shouldn't think you much need luck for that, said Penelope. That may be. Even so, I wish you luck in all things, my pickle, shouted Longbottom, bending down to smash his lips against the top of Penelope's mountain of curls. She waved her hand to shoo him away, but looked pleased despite herself. Tom Longbottom approached his wife slowly and casually, then bent down to put a kiss that was neither slow nor casual directly against her mouth. She brought her hand to his jaw and sighed as he pulled away. He shall kiss William, asked Cassandra. 
she sent a sly glance towards Cressida, whose cheeks flushed hot. Well, someone ought to. Cassandra hopped up, and with her skirts in her hands, ran up to the unhappy William, threw her arms around his neck, and planted a sisterly kiss on his cheek. There you go, Willie. Don't go and smash yourself. She turned her attention to Roland next. You haven't turned out for the Falcons like you ought have done, Roly, but I'd kiss you for luck all the same. He bent down, and she pulled up on her toes to give his cheek a peck before returning at nearly a sprint. Draco sat upright and pulled one of his leather gloves. He looked at Hermione sidelong. I wish your brother luck. Hermione rolled her eyes skyward and shook her head. Good luck. Be safe. Draco paused in the adjustment of his arm guards and then shrugged. While he resumed tightening them down, Hermione took a swallow of her drink and chewed mercilessly at another raspberry. She came to a decision. I'm always safe, I'll have you know, Draco began, turning towards her. At the same time, Hermione leaned in to place a perfunctory kiss on his cheek. The corner of his mouth, where her partially open lips met his, was soft and warm. He tasted of mint. They both pulled back as though they'd been singed. Draco locked eyes with her like a startled fawn for the length of a slippery heartbeat, then leaped to his feet and stalked over to the lawn, yanking on his second glove as he went. He retrieved his broom and a set of goggles off the ground and pulled them on without so much as a passing glance back in Hermione's direction. Hermione guzzled her drink, then began to cough on a raspberry seed. The five racers found their places along the lines that Thomas had marked arbitrarily across the packed dirt of the lawn. Roland, William and Draco were at the front, with Tom Longbottom and Sir Thomas taking up the rear. Penelope joined them at the starting line with her wand in hand. She cast a spell that caused the line in the dirt to briefly glow, and she drew a white lace-edged handkerchief from a pocket at the side of her dress. Each of the men lifted his feet from the ground and sat at the ready astride his broom. "'On your mark!' she called, lifting her handkerchief into the air. "'Get set!' William glanced briefly at Draco. Tom gazed at his wife. Draco glanced sidelong at Roland. Sir Thomas stared straight ahead. Roland turned to look at the lawn and waved. Hermione kept trying to clear the raspberry seed from her throat. Go! Penelope dropped the handkerchief and squeaked in surprise as the draught from the kinetic burst of the brooms taking off swept a dust cloud up her skirts. It had never occurred to Hermione that it was possible for anything to be more tedious than Quidditch until she spent 16 minutes and 28 seconds doing nothing more than waiting for a handful of men to come through an opening in the forest on their brooms. Almost as soon as the race had started, the Longbottom women began chattering about the ball at Thornwood Abbey. They speculated about who in the neighbourhood would attend and who would dance with whom, and opined about which of them looked best in various usual colours for gowns. Hermione opened her book again. She was in the middle of a dense passage explaining the potential for shared state of consciousness between users of a theoretical potion when the robins that had resetted in the ground after the start of the race ceased their scrabbling at the dirt. They lifted their heads, then burst upwards in a whirl of terror as Roland and Draco came flying out of the forest, both nearly flattened against their broom handles. They appeared perfectly matched, neither one so much as a hair's breadth in front of the other clustered with them and only slightly lagging as William. Tom Lombottom came through the broom's length after William, and Sir Thomas trailed or four, looking intently focused on his duties as referee. The Longbottom sisters clapped and whooped, cheering in a scattershot of disloyal fashion of Roly, William, and Mr Granger! There was a loud and discourteous Tom, you lout, shift it! from Cassandra. The racer's passage blew the dust and tiny stones littering the wall out to either side, and left a flurry of desiccated leaves swirling in the air behind them. And like that, they were gone. For a brief while, the women talked about the closeness of the race, comparing the riders' postures and intentness, but then the conversation returned to the excitement of the ball and of the possible table configurations. Hermione cracked open her book once more, and after watching to make sure a shift in Martin's positions didn't mean he'd woken up, she resumed her interest in moon-dried bog myrtle, ground windishins into a pound of medium coarseness, which the grain ought to remain clearly visible to the naked eye. 
The second time, the men burst through to the repeated cheers and abuses of the spectators. Hermione barely looked up long enough to register that Draco had pulled ahead, and that his leader was perhaps enhanced by Roland's turning to wave cheerfully at the parties he passed. William maintained his position as well as his grave countenance, while both the Longbottom men hung on to their places at the back. Martin finally stirred, yawning like a bear in late March, and blinking out the sunny lawns. Hermione went to fetch him. Did you sleep well, cousin? She ducked beneath an arm of the elm and joined him in the shade. They off? he asked, still blinking. Hermione pulled his spectacles from his blankets and tucked them back over his ears. They're off, she assured him. Would you like a raspberry? By the time she had settled him in his chair beside Lady Longbottom, eating happily from a plate of fresh fruit and cheese and drinking a shrub, the men came through once again to head into their last lap around the woods. Roland had overtaken Draco for the lead, and as they passed, Hermione saw that Draco was frowning deeply and looking back at the head of his broom. She shielded her eyes and squinted, but before she could determine what might be wrong, Roland, Draco, William, Tom and Sir Thomas had already sped through and were lost again around the first bend in the track. "'Miss Granger!' said Martin hoarsely. "'Miss Granger!' Hermione crouched down beside him and laid a hand on the arm of his chair. "'What is it, Mr Martin?' He placed his hands over hers. His massive, owlish eyes were wide with concern. "'Tell him it's too fast!' Hermione turned her hands up to grasp his, dry as parchment. "'I've told him already. He doesn't listen to me, though, does he?' Martin shook his head dolefully. "'No. He shouldn't go to France. Tell him to stay!' Hermione pressed his fingers. He'll be just fine, I promise, and I don't expect that he'll go to France any time soon. He frowned. I'm going to miss you. I'll miss you too. She reached up and brushed a wisp of hair away from his eyes. But we have a little longer. She poured him a glass of cool water and urged him to drink it. Then she made him a sandwich, and then she waited. The robins had returned, popping about their business beside the path getting into pretty arguments and occasionally lifting their heads and listening intently before resuming their scratching at the grass. Does anyone know how long it's been? Penelope sat upright, shielding her eyes and peering intently down at the dark mouth of the forest trail. I didn't take a time because the finish line spell takes care of that. Isadora opened her reticule and pulled a little silver watch from inside. She squinted at it then took out her spectacles and put them on. It's been nearly an hour from the start, she said finally. Just shy, but still. Hermione's stomach turned with anxiety. Are there any hazards on the trail? Penelope shook her head. Not precisely. I suppose if they were really intent on winning and took one of the sharper corners too quickly, it could be a problem. But they're all skilled flyers, and it's all for a lark. I can't imagine any of them is especially concerned with the winning. She looked at Hermione questioningly. Are they? Hermione stood and began to walk towards the trail. Shall I go and see about them? No! Cassandra jumped up after her and put a hand on her elbow. They're going to come through at an awful pace, and you won't want to be in their path when they do. Give them a moment. It's possible there's just a brain malfunction and everyone's paused. Hermione sat back down and nipped at a fingernail. Irrationally, she begrudged the poor robins. They ought to have been scattered to the four winds with their eyes bulging ten minutes ago. At last, a hint of motion in the dark recesses of the trail had Hermione and the Longbottom girls on their feet, lifting on their toes to try and get a better look. When the men came up the trail's slight rise, at last, they were walking. Sir Thomas and Tom Longbottom headed the party, holding the corners of what Hermione gradually determined was a stretcher. They both had brooms tucked under their arms, but Sir Thomas carried two. She tucked her thumbnail between her teeth and bit down hard. As the rear of the stretcher came into view, her heart took off at a terrorising sprint, and her chest grew so tight she struggled to breathe. Roland and William were at the back. The scene on the lawn took on the warped quality of a dream. As though it were a film in which she could observe but not act, she watched Cressida take off at an open run to meet the men as they laid Draco down on the grass. He wasn't moving and Hermione realised that what she had perceived as a handkerchief tied around his head was his hair, 
and that it, the top quarter of the stretcher, was soaked in red. Cressida had her wand out the moment she arrived. She rapidly vanished the stains before dropping to her knees and casting spells that threw a row of glowing graphs into the air before her. She looked them over with her sharp eyes and then began to give orders to the men. Tom, go and fetch Hila Fredrickson from the village, she said. Apparate there. Don't waste any time. She turned to Sir Thomas. Father, can you please go into the hall and have the elves come down and help him bring him up to one of the rooms? It's imperative that he's not stirred from this position in the smallest degree. Repeat that to them. Make sure they understand. Sir Thomas apparated with no more than a sharp crack of empty air. Cressida bent over Draco again, whispering incantations and floating the tip of her wand over the length of his neck and down the midline of his chest with slow, deliberate movements. He wouldn't have moved him at all before I could see to him, she said to no one in particular, but it's extremely fortunate. I don't believe you've done any more damage. I've stabilised his spine and he should be moved indoors as quickly as possible. She looked up at William and her beautiful dark eyes pleaded with him plainly and without pride. Here, Fredrickson isn't going to be enough. He breathed hard. Hermione noticed for the first time that the front of his shirt was untucked and soaked with red, and that a long strip was torn away at the hem. The men must have used it to transfigure into a stretcher. With a look of genuine pain, he nodded. I'll go to London for a healer Bartholomew. I believe he owes my father a favour, and I'm sure that I can persuade him of the seriousness of the case. Cressida reached up to him, and he took her hand. Thank you. He let her go and apparated without another word. How can I be of service, Miss Cressida? asked Roland. Cressida looked around. Mr Martin ought to be taken back to the cottage, she said. I'm sure that he'll be much more comfortable at home with Mr Griggs. And Mrs Longbottom, I'm sure she'd like to go home as well. Lady Longbottom had woken into action herself. She instructed Isadora, Penelope and Cassandra to gather certain potions and ready a quality of bandages, and fresh linens before approaching Hermione and taking her gently by the arm. Her expression was soft with care. "'I am going to take you inside now, Miss Granger,' she said, pressing patiently at Hermione's elbow. The low, even tone of her voice had previously seemed detached and uncaring, but now Hermione felt its undercurrent of soothing steadiness and calm. "'I'll get you a cup of tea, and you can help us prepare linens if activity is what you need.' "'Mr. Martin will need me.' Hermione's throat felt as though it were closing down. I ought to be the one to walk with him. Rowley will take Mr. Martin to the cottage, Hermione. Please, come along with me, darling. Hermione could only stare at Draco's motionless form. Lady Longbottom squeezed her arm in reassurance. Sir Thomas will be back with the elves presently to fetch your brother in. We'll do absolutely everything we can that can be done. At that exact moment, Sir Thomas apparated to the lawns alongside a trio of elves, who had sturdy and callously looked of stable hands or general handymen. "'Up with him, if you please, gents, and, as I said, steady as can be. We're headed to the guest room at the near end of the east wing,' said Sir Thomas. They carefully levitated Draco on the stretcher up the slope of the lawn and back to the house, with Cressida trailing after. Roland crouched beside Mr Martin and gripped his shoulder. "'Come on, sir. Let's fetch you back to Mr Griggs.' Martin fidgeted in his chair, his eyes swirling about as though he couldn't make any sense of the visual field in front of him. "'The potion,' he said, agitatedly. "'You'll fetch it down, won't you?' "'Whatever it is that you need, you shall have it,' said Roland. "'May I push you? Is that all right?' He turned to Hermione. "'I'll come back soon,' he said. "'Can I bring you anything from the cottage?' Lady Longbottom pulled gently at Hermione's elbow staring her towards the house. No, thank you. Hermione shook her head. Everything I have in the world is right here. Hermione's first cup of tea, taken at a small table in the entryway of Bugbuntley Hall, went cold and was discarded. Hila Fredrickson, young, with sandy hair and a kind face, arrived with Tom Longbottom through the front door. They climbed the stairs quickly, and a short while later only Tom came back down. Without saying a word, he took Hermione's hand in his and pressed it, then apparated away. Half an hour later, she moved to a drawing-room sofa. An elf had carried a little black and white cat called Hugo into her on orders of Thomas. 
Most immediately, he had fallen asleep on his back across the depth of the cushion, with his four paws held straight in front of him. He tilted his head back in order to provide Hermione access to his chin, but whether she scratched him or not, he purred to himself. His presence was possibly the wisest measurement anyone could have undertaken to comfort her. Isadora arrived and quickly sat beside her until she was called away by her mother. She returned twenty minutes later to inform Hermione that Healer Bartholomew had flew directly into the bedroom where Draco lay. He had immediately taken charge of Draco's care and would send down news as soon as there was any to be had. They would like us to bring them more bandages, said Isadora gently. Hermione gripped her hands so tight that her knuckles turned pale. Have they said what happened? she said. Isadora shook her head. Tom's gone home to be with Mrs Longbottom. She's apparently quite shaken. And my father or William will be able to tell you, I'm certain. Would you like a fresh cup of tea? Hermione looked down at her second cup, cold and untried in her lap. No, thank you. She set the cup and saucer on a table beside the sofa and looked at Isadora imploringly. I need something to do. They tore linen into uniform strips with a spell Hermione had never learned, folded them and sent them up to the sick room with an elf who looked at them with pity. After that, Hermione felt driven to sanitise the kitchen while Isadora made herself busy at a tall chest in the pantry, holding the family's medicinal potion stores. Isadora packed up bundles of potions to reduce swelling and pain, salves for healing shallow wounds, and tinctures to bring on sleep, though Draco hadn't shown any signs of consciousness. She left to bring them upstairs. Hermione was on her hands and knees disinfecting the tile around the hearth when she heard a familiar gruff cough and turned to find Roland in the doorway that led out to the kitchen garden. Grick stood beside him, holding a grey, tweed, ivy cap in his hands. Today's dress was a frivolous thing, in a blue gauze embroidered with a grotesquely cheerful yellow and white flower. She had tied a sturdy apron over it, and as she sat back on her heels, she wrung the coarse, striped fabric hard between her hands. I, I don't know. She had the slightest idea how she meant to continue, so instead she covered her face with her hands. She heard dusty, shuffling footsteps, and then felt a hand at her hair, patting her like a little dog. It'll come all right, Hermione. She leaned forward to bury her face in the soft plan of Grix's shirt and began to cry. It'll come right, he said again, still patting the back of her hair. Hey, come on, chin up. Hermione sat back and pressed her eyes with the backs of her hands, and Roland handed her down a handkerchief. I don't know what to do, she said plaintively, and I always know what to do. Grix vanished the wet stain from his shoulder and pushed his half-moon spectacles up on his nose. Live long enough and you'll find that sometimes you don't. He reached into his chest pocket and pulled out a vial of pearlescent gold liquid. I bought one of Mr Martin's brews. You'll want to run this up and get it to him as soon as the healers slow down and leave him to rest. They won't like it, so you might need to be clever, which I know that you are. But don't dally. Martin reckons he'll need to start it before morning. Hermione took the vial and rolled it between her fingers. The glass was warm from having been in Grix's pocket. The thin potion inside caught the light and swirled with bright coral and melon-orange currants. She sniffed and wiped her nose with a handkerchief. What is it? It's for the brain, said Grix. And with an ounce of luck, the spine as well. I don't believe he's bothered to name this one. Martin's field of research was mostly the mind, as I'm sure you've gathered from the books you've borrowed without asking. But he's got a real grip on how a living thing repairs itself, generally. He insisted I bring this particular one over and give it to your brother in two doses, one tonight and again in the morning. He turned his flat cap in his hands. Hermione worked hard at holding back another round of tears. Thank you. I'm not promising a favourable change in personality, mind, he added. Hermione laughed wetly. But Martin's older than he has any right to be, he went on, and sharper than you might be aware, and it's not all down to my nagging. Hermione thanked Grix again, and then again, warmly and profusely. She rose to walk him up the garden path, then watched him go, tromping between rows of onions. She came back to the hall slowly, letting the sun heat her cheeks and eyelids once she had pressed them closed. Then she stopped, leaning in the kitchen doorway. 
Roland sat back, gripping the edge of the long wooden work table, overhung with drying herb bunches of flowers and posies. His chin dropped towards his chest, and he lifted his eyes to her. He looked worried, and the money wasn't sure whether it was on Draco's behalf or hers. What happened? she asked. He was behind me, I didn't see it, said Roland. But there's a sharp turn on the last quarter of the course that can make the head of your broom want to swing sideways. Is he used to a different model by any chance? Something made by a local craftsman, perhaps? A talk can be surprising. Hermione nodded. Yes, his usual broom is very different. There's a cluster of large stones just at that turn. He radiated deep sympathy and care as he spoke. Will's as quick as they come, though. His reflexes are extraordinary, and he threw out a cushioning charm that slowed him down. If he hadn't... He stopped. I'm so very sorry, Miss Granger. You and your brother seem very close. Hermione shook her head. Oh, we aren't... She pressed her lips together and swallowed. I suppose... Yes. Yes, we're quite close. A pair of elves apparated into the kitchen, and seemed surprised to find Roland and Hermione there. "'I'm so sorry,' said Hermione, wiping her eyes with the back of her hand. "'We'll get out of your way.' "'Walk with me?' Roland indicated the gardens beyond the door. With gratitude, Hermione took his arm. Dinner was served in the dining room, but Hermione couldn't think of eating. Instead, she sat in a chair that was placed out for her beside Drago's bedroom door. She heard low voices within, but couldn't make them out, and couldn't bring herself to use magic to listen. She wasn't able to focus on the words in her book, either, though she'd exchanged Martin's potions text for a volume of John Donne. She traced a finger over the line of print. For God's sake, hold thy tongue, and let me love. She snapped the book shut. After dinner, Isadora bought her a cordial, which she drank, and then Penelope bought her another, distinctively larger glass of red wine. Lady Longbottom came and forced her, by way of her own calculated compulescence, to retire to the room across the hall and dress for bed. She endeared Hermione's stays herself, and didn't ask about the leather pouch or the wand that Hermione drew from her bosom. Then she plaited her hair with the long, smooth strokes of a charmed comb. "'Would you like a sleeping draught, my dear?' she asked, pressing her cool hands to Hermione's shoulders. Hermione declined, and once Lady Longbottom had left— resumed her place beside Draco's door. Wrapped in a white dressing gown, eyes wandering over fields of poetry and seeing nothing, she waited. She supposed she must have fallen asleep. When she woke, Cressida was before her with a hand on Hermione's knee. "'They're going,' she said softly. "'Would you like to come in?' Hermione followed her into the room. It was low-lit by candles and steeped in the biting, mentholated smell of apothecaries. Hela Fredrickson was buttoning his jacket— he picked up a brown leather healer's bag and walked to the flue. "'Miss Granger?' he said with a manly nod. He glanced at another man, quite tall and in early middle age, with a greying beard and moustache. "'Healer Bartholomew can fill you in. I'll be back in the morning.' Draco was tucked under a white sheet and coverlet, his arms lying limply at his sides. He slept. His chest rose and fell quickly and unevenly. A neat white bandage swathed his head. Hovering before the wall over his head, a row of charts in amber and bright blue lightly glowed and shifted. They presented a steady stream of information, only some of which Hermione knew how to read. She could tell that his heart was beating fast. Cressida had pulled an apron over the same dress she'd worn at the picnic, and had her wand out, vanishing used supplies and scourgifying them on a wooden table beneath the curtained window. Hermione looked inquiringly at Hila Bartholomew as he packed his bag. "'Your brother is a very fortunate man, Miss Granger,' he said. "'Fortunate that his fall was blunted by Mr Avery's quick thinking. "'Fortunate that in moving him his friends, though she had dumb luck, "'avoided a greater catastrophe. "'He was most fortunate, however, to have chosen to throw himself off a broom "'at a reckless speed while in the company of Miss Cressida Longbottom.' "'Cressida didn't look up from her work. "'Hila Bartholomew retrieved his coat from the back of the chair and pulled it on. We've put the necessary repairs in motion, and over the course of several days the gross insults to his cranium, vertebrae, arms and ribs will fully heal. But we can't know the extent of the damage to his ability to use his extremities or whether his cognitive capabilities 
I've been compromised until he wakes. So he might be paralysed, said Hermione, and he may not be the same. He had a Bartholomew glance towards Cressida. Cressida tells me that your brother is a keen intellect, and that he's an active athletic man. Hermione nodded. I have strong hopes that in time he will still be both. He stepped to the flu. But you shall prepare yourselves as best as you can for the alternative. Uh, Miss Cressida, he bowed his head genteelly at the tired-looking girl. Your efforts have been extraordinary. Try to get some sleep. Heal those orders. I'll see you bright and early in the morning. With a green flu-light flare, he left them. Cressida finished cleaning the work table. Would you like to keep watch over him tonight, Miss Granger? She pointed to the luminous chart over his head. I can show you what to look for. I know what I would find very hard to leave him if he were my... She cleared her throat. I would feel just as you do, were he my brother. Hermione followed along as Cressida taught her to read his vital signs and specific measures of his healing progress, should she like to follow them. Cressida straightened Draco's linens, then pulled a chair up beside the bed. There's a chase just there as well. She pointed to the corner of the room. Should you need to sleep? If any of his vital signs go awry, there will be an alarm. I'll heal it, and Hila Bartholomew and Hila Fredrickson are only on the other side of the flue. She pulled off her apron, folded it, and placed it on the work table. Hermione sat in the chair. Cressida turned to the bedside and pressed her fingertips to the pulse point at Draco's wrist. I know I could read it just there, she said, glancing up at his heart rate on the monitoring spells. But it's reassuring to feel it for myself from time to time. You're very fond, Hermione said. Her heart ached terribly. For Cressida, for William, and for Draco. I've only just met your brother, Miss Granger. Cressida released Draco's wrist. A one shouldn't get carried away. It's silly. It's hard not to be silly sometimes. Cressida's wide brown eyes shone wet in the candlelight. It is, isn't it? She swiped back of her hand over her cheeks. I'll leave you then. She picked up her skirts in one hand and bustled to the door. Please remember, she said as she gripped the door handle. Pulse, breathing, blood pressure. I understand, Cressida, said Hermione. I promise you that I understand. With a latch click, Hermione and Draco were alone. His respiration was fast and shallow. Before she could forget, Hermione pulled Martin's potion from her pocket in her dressing gown and uncapped it. Very gently, she tucked her finger between his teeth and pulled his jaw down. She tipped half of the potion along the inside of his cheek and breathed a sigh of relief as he visibly swallowed. She capped the potion and pocketed it again, then drew her wand and extinguished the candles around the room. The fire was down to its embers, and they were left bathed in a flickering glow of his vital signs overhead. She glanced at the door and listened. Hearing no sound, she leaned forward, pushed her arm beneath his and took his hand. It was warm and a little damp, and though she wove her fingers between his and folded them back against his hand, his grip remained slack. I do remember about the raspberries, you know. Her voice was low and deliberate. And I do only have them at Christmas. Only ever at Christmas. She tightened her hand around his. I had them at the first party. We'd been working together for two years, and I got so angry that you still wouldn't come, and I bullied you into it. Without letting go of him, she sank to her knees beside the bed. You tease me about them every year, but I order them anyway. I always have too many, and I always, always will. The first tears ran down her cheeks and spattered on the floor at her knees. Carefully she rose, and even more carefully slid into the narrow strip of space between his body and the edge of the bed. You're a cad, she whispered. Her tears forged new paths from the corners of her eyes and dripped onto the bed linens. She brought her free hand to his mouth. With the lightest touch, she traced the shape of his upper lip. And of course you taste like mint. She brushed the pads of her fingers over the full curve of his lower lip, then let them trail over his cheek and jaw to the space just below his ear. You're going to wake up tomorrow, she said. I'm telling you, and you have to listen to me this time. Her voice was nearly swallowed up by the soft pop and whine of charred wood in the fireplace. She lifted their entwined fingers to her mouth and rested her lips against the back of his hand. You're the worst. Her breath moved over his skin. 
You must know that you are. She stroked his earlobe once, with a vanishing touch. I don't care where it is, she whispered. It could be England, or France, or Argentina. Her voice was thick and stilted. And I don't care whether you can walk, or talk, or tie your own cravat. But you have to be in the world. I couldn't possibly stand it if you weren't. She pressed her lips against his hand, and biting back a sob that rose from the bruising pain settled deep beneath her ribs, she tucked her knees to her belly like a child. The damp circle on the linens below her cheeks spread, and the lights above them brightened and dimmed and brightened again. She laid her hand over his heart, and felt it drumming in his chest, and watched its echo move in the dark. The official Ministry Christmas party had ended at ten o'clock, and by twenty past they were parked in a warm wooden stools at a laboratory's bar, half in and half out of Diagon Alley. An anemic strand of Christmas lights was tacked up unevenly over the long shelves of liquor bottles. It was the type that blinked and lit the near-white canvas of Draco's hair pink, and then blue, and then yellow, before cycling to green and starting over. "'Aren't you hot, Malfoy?' Hermione shouted. She tucked a finger beneath the rolled edge of her turtleneck collar, pulled it away from herself, and used her other hand to fan the air of the crowded bar down the front of her dress. No, he said, raising his voice over the increasingly lubricated conversations around them. Somewhere behind him, a man with a clear, resonant tenor began to sing a randy version of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. But there are probably two hundred people in this bar, and you're wearing... He glanced down. Never mind what you're wearing. Stop trying to change the subject. Hermione was jolted forward as a man in a Santa hat holding a pair of heady pints threaded his way through the crowd and knocked into her shoulder. She caught herself with a hand on Draco's thigh, then righted herself. I'm not changing the subject. I'm hot, she said. She marvelled at how loud her voice had become. It's a sweater dress. It's a sweater that's long enough to be a dress. I can see that, Granger. Draco laughed as he brought his glass of Ogden's to his mouth. It looks cosy. Oh, you're the worst. She propped her elbows against the bar, leaned her head heavily against her hand and considered him. The absolute worst. I hope you're aware of that. He smirked at her and her eyes opened wide. Oh, there you are, you smirk. I'm going to cover you up. She lifted her free hand and squinted so that from her perspective it blocked the lower half of his face. From the way his eyes crinkled at the corners, it seemed to be making him smile in full. She huffed a stray coil of hair out of her eyes, sat back up, and began circling a finger around the rim of her cocktail glass. A handful of raspberries bobbed at the surface of the pink drink. She picked up the glass and drank deeply, then set it back down, half on and half off the paper coaster next to her. As it began to tip, Draco put his hand over hers and helped guide the glass back until it was securely situated. "'I don't know why you think the ratios are off,' she continued, sucking a drop of liquid from the side of her thumb and letting her forearm rest on the bar. The preliminaries look perfect and the preliminaries are preliminaries, he said exasperated. And plants are entirely different on a cellular level to... Money rolled her eyes. See? That's exactly why I was talking about a minute ago. He pointed at her. I thought we'd agreed to no eye-rolling about work. He dropped his hand next to hers. Who's the worst now? It's you. He grasped the tip of her little finger and held it for a moment, then pulled his hand away and took a sip of his drink. I could time travel to buy Xantium tomorrow, with that potion in hand, and come back not a day older. She swept her arm in front of herself for emphasis. Look! She turned to the man sitting on the other side of her and patted his arm. Stevens? Yes, hello, do you mind? She indicated the white paper serviette sitting in front of him. Thank you, she said as she handed it over. Do you have a quill, Malfoy? Draco produced a slim, silver self-inking quill from his suit jacket's interior pocket and handed it to her. Thanks, I don't want to have one on me, she said, looking down and briefly searching at her hips for a non-existent place to stash a quill. I'm shocked you have room for yourself in that dress, let alone a writing implement. It's well and truly just me in here, believe me. His impeccable eyebrows reached for the ceiling. You made a very compelling argument about the necessity of the kelp extract, she said, marking down a series of wobbly symbols on a serviette. And the substantially harvested... Is it 
sustainably harvested. Yes, it's sustainably harvested uni-oshi. Oshi-oni. Oshi-oni venom. In spite of herself, she laughed. Stop it! He nodded obediently while she scrawled another series of marks. We've brewed it, and we're so near to being done re-engineering the time-turners that we've begun to really test it. The potion looks perfect. She shoved the serviette in front of him and tossed the quill down beside it. Show me the flaw in the essential formula, please. She picked up a glass and drained it in three swallows, then chewed triumphantly on a raspberry. I'm not arguing that it isn't possible, and it's the right answer to the problem for ageing and time travel, Granger, said Draco, picking up the serviette and looking it over. The bar had grown louder, and it sounded as though someone had bought over the leftover cupcakes from the official Ministry Christmas party. He listened to the ambient conversations for a moment, then raised his voice and turned more fully towards her. There was very little space to manoeuvre, and as she pulled her closer to hear him, the tips of her knees slid between his parted legs. He brought the side of his fist to his lips, and cleared his throat before beginning again. I fully recognise that this, he waved the serviette, is an extraordinarily promising, highly creative approach. Hermione pursed her lips at him in self-satisfaction. He looked amused as he sat down the serviette and grasped his drink. I'm just saying that I would not join you for brunch in Byzantium tomorrow, with a vial of that potion in my pocket, even if you asked me very nicely, because the ratios are off. Hermione tipped towards him. You, she said, slapping her palm against the centre of his chest, are wrong. And the day I prove it to you will be the day that I savour like, like three stiff French martinis in the space of forty-five minutes. Like a fine wine. Her hand slid limply down the front of his shirt and came to rest on his thigh. It's been sixty minutes at least. She smacked his leg for emphasis. And the martinis are delicious. I'm telling you that they're raspberry and pineapple, but you refuse to listen. Anyway, you're supposed to be the cavalier one. Who are you? Where is my lab partner? Judging by how close you are to tumbling off that stool, he said, nudging her to sit more securely with a hand at her waist. At least two drinks behind you. She was muzzy with vodka and chambord, and it took her a moment to fully absorb that she had been looking at him directly in the eyes for quite some time. Pale slate blue. Grey if you weren't close enough. But she was. I'm not drunk. She wrinkled her nose at him petulantly. Of course not. That would be impossible. He reached up and grabbed the tip of an errant curl at her temple, and pulled it down and released it. Hermione Granger doesn't get drunk. The smile that dragged at the corners of his mouth was small, disconcertingly fragile thing that faded, then disappeared. She's perfect. She felt that she ought to laugh, but there was no levity in her voice when she spoke. I'm not perfect. He took in a slow breath and released it, as though he were very tired. You're not? She shook her head. No. Are you telling me, Granger? That's me. Yes, that, that's very much you. Are you telling me that you're capable of making mistakes? It had grown even hotter in the bar. Hermione tugged at the front of her dress again. You're laughing at me, she said. Not this time. The part of her mind that remained dry above the food and alcohol recognised that there was a socially acceptable limit to eye contact, and that they'd surpassed it. Not silver in a dim and dingy bar, grey-blue like the surf of a cloud-sheltered day. The room felt airless, and she wanted... She wanted... In that moment she was acutely aware of something she carried around inside of her that was neither an ache nor an itch, but somehow both, deep and unreachable and confusingly sad if she allowed herself to dwell on it. It was an ailment very much of the body, and the unfailing cure was rapid retreat to the safety of her head. The muscle of his thigh contracted under her fingers. I try, she said, drawing her hand back into her own lap. I try very hard not to make mistakes. His gaze wandered over her face. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to be one. One what? One of your mistakes. A voice vaulted the fence they'd built around themselves.
You're right, my knee. Draco drew back his knees and picked up his drink and turned to face the bar. Ron squeezed between the backs of two ministry employees, lifting his half-full pint glass up over their heads and wound his way towards them. When he arrived, he leaned a hip against the wooden counter behind Hermione, wrapped his arm across the front of her shoulders and kissed the top of her head. Happy Christmas, ferret! Draco's eyes were trained on the liquor shelves behind the bar, but he glanced up at Ron and raised his glass. Happy Christmas, weasel. Hermione folded her fingers over Ron's forearm. Are we still doing the wind in the willows? They ignored her. Did you come here with Alicia, from payroll? Ron asked Draco. Draco nodded curtly. Seamus is showing her some pointers over at the billiards table. It's a rather up-and-close and personal tutorial, just a heads up. Ron rubbed Hermione's shoulder with his thumb. Draco spared a brief glance across the room. I'll make sure she's not too drunk to go home with him. Do the two of you sort out your differences about the... Ron gestured to the serviette on the bar. They're not differences exactly, said Hermione. That great horrible smirk over there is just being an intractable pessimist. And intractably wrong. Draco scoffed and signalled to the bartender for another whisky. How many have you had, Miney? Ron laughed and squeezed her shoulder. Has she been bullying you like this all evening, Malfoy? She certainly shouldn't apparate, said Draco. All right, then. Ron polished off his pint and leaned down to press his lips against the top of Hermione's head again. I'm ready to go home. Shall I toss you over my shoulder, or would you like to stay here and take Malfoy down a few more pegs? He looked at Draco. Could you get home for us? Draco looked briefly at Hermione and nodded. And whatever she wants. She turned her face away from him. Her cheeks felt hot. I'm fine. I'll come home. Gathering up her beaded bag, she slipped her feet back into her heels. She'd kicked off underneath her barstool. Happy Christmas. She fought back an impulse to lay a hand on Draco's arm. I'll see you in the New Year, all right? The bartender placed his drink in front of him and swept away his empty glass. He looked down and rotated it on its coaster, then gave Hermione and Ron a tight, congenial smile. Happy Christmas, Granger. Weasley. He drummed his fingers against the side of his glass. See you back at the lab. Ron was tall, strong, and full of an earned confidence after four years as an aura. He pushed through the press of bodies ahead of him with ease, pulling Hermione behind him. As she gripped his hand and followed, she looked back over her shoulder. Draco sat at the bar, his hair lit green, and then pink, and then blue. He took a drink of his whisky and watched her go.